O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. That's Psalm 6, which along with Psalm 5 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, November the 29th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the prophecy of Amos, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. We're in 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 21, and in Matthew's Gospel, the 21st chapter, verses 12 to 22. So we're continuing to get this judgment proclamation against Israel by Amos, who has come from Tekoa to give this word of judgment in, in the hopes that the people will listen, but in the knowledge that they won't. So hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So that that language, the family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, is an appeal back to the covenant treaty of Exodus 20, because that's his, the basis for the covenant treaty, which we call the Ten Commandments, is that, that he is the Lord their God who brought them up out of Israel, and for that reason, he has a claim on them that he doesn't have on anybody else, nor do, do can they violate that covenant without going against the one who brought them out of Egypt? It's an important recollection always to remember who it was that brought you up, who saved you. And as long as we keep that basic relationship right, then we'll do better at keeping the terms of the covenant that we have with him so long as we live our lives humbly in the knowledge that we always stand in need of a Savior. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, which was true at the time. They're the only one of the families of earth who accepted the covenant terms of God. And we, we see in Jewish literature, um, rabbinic literature primarily, that, that that's not even a, a place for pride for them because w- basically what they're told is, is that they were not even a nation until he gathered them and he had offered the covenant terms, this is a Jewish belief now, with every other nation on earth, and they had turned him down. The Jews basically had no choice. I mean, they were, they were not even a people. They were a family. They were not certainly not a, a nation to speak of at that time. They were a huge extended family. And so God makes a promise and a covenant with them. And then of all the nations on earth, they're the only ones who know who he is. They're the only ones on earth who have heard his voice there at the mountain at uh, Sinai. And so that's what he means there. You only have I known of all the families on earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities, because I made my covenant plain to you. You know uh, good and evil, because I told you what good and evil is. And I told you that in the Ten Commandments and then everything else that's included in the law of Moses. He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Aren't we in covenant with one another? 
I kind of think that, that we both have an agreed upon set of duties and responsibilities here. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, he's hunting and he's stealthy. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Because when you blow the trumpet in the city, it means there's some danger potential. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? In other words, he is the one who upholds all things. That, that the, the nations of the earth have the illusion of strength and power, but it's the Lord who builds up and puts down. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In other words, that, that God's not, don't be surprised by what's coming on, because God always reveals it first to the prophets, whose job it is then to communicate that prophecy, the word of God, to the people of God. And, and it's in order that they would repent, and that they would turn from their wicked ways. So he says, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So what he's calling are these pagan nations to come and observe his people and find out how horrible they are, his people, so that they can see that God's judgment will be against them and why his judgment will be against them. He's calling these pagan nations to come and judge his people to see that they don't have any idea how to do right. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. So he announces that he's going to use the nations as an instrument of his judgment against his people. Because they will then have seen and bear witness to the fact that there's no righteousness or justice anywhere in the land from among God's people. In the gospel lesson, remember Jesus had come into town on um, uh, Palm Sunday. That was our reading from yesterday. So he comes into the city, enters the temple, and drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So what he's done is is that the people who have come in for the pilgrim festival have typically not brought their own animals to sacrifice because the problem can be there could be a blemish there could be a problem with those animals particularly if you're taking them from a distance so what happens is once you get to the city there are those who deal in sacrificial animals that have been pre-approved by the priests um, so that that you can know without any doubt that your sacrifice will be accepted and acceptable now there's graft and all kinds of other things that get involved in that. There's, there's money to be made in selling these things in this way. And so there are kickbacks all along the way. And so they're preying on these people who are coming from uh, long distances, in some cases, into the city. And so they're, they're doing that. And then the money changers are those who are, you've got to pay the temple tax with the drachma. And so you've got to get your money changed and come to uh, the place where you can get to the drachma. And you have to pay that tax. And so, well, there's a slight upcharge for that uh, to, to exchange that money here. And so there's profiteering going on. And the problem is not only is there profiteering going on on the, on the pilgrims, and the, and the last category of people that he mentions here are those who sold pigeons, which would be the poorest 
person's sacrifice. And so there's, there's predatory stuff going on all the way along in this thing, but also they've set all this up in the, in the area around the temple that is sometimes known as the court of the Gentiles. It's the place where the Gentiles could come and, and interact with what's going on in the temple precincts. They could hear teaching, for instance, and Jesus teaches in those temple precincts in a way that the Gentiles would be able to hear it. And so Jesus says, it's, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you make it into a den of robbers. And so you've, you've profaned the temple by making it simply nothing more than a place where you can come and profiteer off people's genuine religious obligations. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So they see Jesus healing the blind and the lame, <laughs> and hearing children cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, and they're indignant. It's because they're not coming to them. They're, they're essentially rejecting them as their leaders and going to Jesus. Well, there are good reasons for that, not the least of which is he's healing all these people, and he's proving that he cons- has concern for and loves them by driving out those profiteering people from the temple at this time. And so they, the this, uh, priests and the scribes, said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yeah. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? In other words, they're telling the truth about me. What they're saying is true and wholesome. And you are indignant about it. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. It's out near the Mount of Olives, as I said, so he can say that they stay, They remained in Jerusalem during the Feast of the Passover. So in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. That's a powerful sign, and it's a sign that's gonna, that he's basically going to speak over Jerusalem when he talks about the temple being destroyed. It's the same essential parable that, that's acted out with the fig tree as will be acted out with the destruction of the temple in AD 70, after Jesus has prophesied that not one stone would be left standing upon another. And so this, this, this acted-out parable of the fig tree is exactly that. It looks good. It looks like it should bear fruit, but it doesn't. It has no fruit, and that's what he condemns in uh, Israel. That's what he condemns in Jerusalem. It's what he condemns particularly in the leaders of the people. When the disciples saw it, the withering of the fig tree, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? How did that happen? How did you speak that over that? You mean the same guy that you heard speak to the wind and waves and they obeyed him? How did he do this? So Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. And so remember yesterday, what we said uh, was that from the second Peter lesson was everything starts with faith. It doesn't end with faith, although faith is is never replaced by anything else. We supplement it with character. 
We supplement it with the things that we pursue in our lives, and ultimately what we're to pursue is love. And so Jesus says, if you have faith, then you'll receive the things that you ask in prayer. But but that is not the same thing as name it, claim it. It's not the same thing that says, well, I've asked this, God's obliged to do it. No, that's not how it works. It's never how it works. Um, you have to abide in Christ. And if you're abiding in him, then you will see your prayers answered. You will see the desires of your heart changed first, and then those things that you pray for will become the things that God wants to bring into existence anyway, in order that he could do through you what, he, what Amos says he does through him, which is that he establishes things through the word of the pro, through the prophets first. In this Second Peter lesson today, he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Those qualities were the ones that, that we talked about yesterday, right, that had to do with righteousness and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection and love those virtues, those qualities that he's talking about there. And another way that can be translated, and is translated in a couple of different places this way, is excellencies. Those, I'll remind you of these excellencies, which is to say, these are the things that you should absolutely pursue. I'm going to make it really simple for you. You, you don't have to have tons and tons of instruction, but pursue these virtues. <clears throat> Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I'm going to keep reminding you, he says, I think it right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. In other words, I'm not going to be with you very much longer, and I know that. God's given me a word that that I'm not going to be with you much longer, so while I'm here, I'm going to continue to remind you what to pursue in your life, what to supplement your faith with. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things, which would mean I'm going to write them down for you. <laughs> You're going to have the ability to recall them because they're going to be right in front of you, and they're going to become God's Word. He says, For we didn't follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of the majesty. This wasn't something we cooked up and then started telling this story. No, we were eyewitnesses to this. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, when God speaks that and then tells them. He didn't finish the quote, but what the finishing of the quote would be, not only did he say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, he said, listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah vanish at that point, and so Peter understood, perhaps for the very first time completely, the uniqueness of Jesus even when compared to the great heroes of Judaism, Moses and Elijah. And he says, we were there. This is not something I made up. And, and, and he would liken it at some level to another holy mountain, right? That would be Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel heard that majestic glory, that voice coming from the mountain that proclaimed the Ten Commandments. And they have said, we have heard and we will obey, or we will listen and we will obey. And so that you, you see here that, that he is making that same claim that we were eyewitnesses to what happened on that mountain in the same way that the nation was witness to God's voice on the mountain speaking to Moses. 
It's the same thing, but this is even higher, he says, than that. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So true prophecy, he said, isn't something cooked up and of heaven or of human inter or invention. No, it, it's a word truly from God, and and there's got to be a proof of prophecy, and that that's certainly a, a simple, basic Jewish and Christian concept. And the test of prophecy is, does it come true? And so when when Peter says these things, he says, "Look, I'm speaking prophetically." And prophetically, what I'm telling you is is that the end of all things is at hand, which is exactly how he had begun the epistle, is to, to declare that the end of all things is at hand. And so that's the prophetic word that he's speaking now. And so that prophetic word is proclaimed in order that the people could then repent and prepare themselves for the coming again of Jesus Christ. It's important when we preach always to make that first and foremost, that, that our work is the same as the work of John the Baptist, but we have a better message than John the Baptist because we can proclaim Christ crucified and risen from the dead, but our job is nonetheless the same, which is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and which is to say you got to supplement your faith with these qualities that pe- Peter's speaking about there so that your faith may be tested and genuine and provable.